Welcome to Stocks Not Sports, the podcast where we try to talk about investment ideas in the same casual way we talk about sports with our acquaintances, work colleagues, friends, and family members. This podcast is brought to you by Infor Financial Group, who is committed to providing innovative, forward-thinking financial advice to all of their clients and customers. I'm Kenrick Sylvester, Principal and Head of Distribution. I have to note the following disclaimer. This podcast is not to be taken as investment advice, and participants or employees of Infor Financial Group may own securities discussed in this podcast. While we love all of our guests, this podcast may contain forward-looking statements, investment opinions, and comments that we do not agree with at all. Olha o Adriano, tem a chance, abre o espaço, bate pro gol, perna esquerda, gol! With us today is Dr. Nicole Adshed-Bell, Lead Director for Bravo Mining Corp. Bravo Mining is a mineral exploration and development company focused on advancing the Luanga project in Brazil. Bravo's Luanga project was acquired from global mining giant Valet in 2021 and includes a large land package that's geographically located close to operating mines, major mining towns, and has excellent access and proximity to existing infrastructure. Dr. Akshad Bell is a geologist with over 25 years of capital markets and mineral sector experience, including a number of years as an independent director for TSX, NYSE, AIM, and ASX-listed companies. Her resume includes CEO, investor, investment banker, sell-side equity research analyst, and geology consultant. Wow, Nikki, that is a lot. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's always weird hearing your bio read back to you. I think I, I sounds like I've uh, a jack of all trades. <laughs> You've done quite a bit. It's very, very, very impressive. So, you know, I thought a, a really interesting way to hear and learn more about you. We like to do a little speed dating questionnaire where we try to learn more about you in a few seconds. You ready? Yep. What was your post-secondary education? Degree, honours degree, which is a uniquely Australian approach to post-secondary education, and then a PhD in geology. I basically spend way too long at university. Unbelievable. So books or podcasts? I'm going to be a traitor to this method of communication, books, love books. And just I'm just going to do a quick, if it's okay, shout out to my sister, Dr. Kirsten Bell. She's a cultural anthropologist, and she's just recently published her first book on popular anthropology. It's called Silent But Deadly. So if you want to take your mind off probably what we're all experiencing at the moment, which is a decline in our PAs, uh, I would absolutely <laughs> thoroughly advise you to buy her book. It's, it's hilarious. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a sister. That's amazing. I'll actually check that out. Beer or wine? Wine. I'm very un-Australian. I only like wine. Uh, sweet tooth or salty snacks? Salty. Well, Carby, give me a loaf of fresh hot white bread. I will be stuffing them down my face as fast <laughs> as I can possible. I have no self-control in that arena. Actually, I share I share that with you. I'm a huge fan of bread. It's actually become a dessert now because of we're trying to limit my carb intake. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> I do not have a sweet tooth at all. I have a carb tooth. Uh, so TV, linear or streaming? Streaming. I'm finishing off the second season of The Boys on Amazon Prime. It's, <laughs> it's a great TV show. I love show. that show. I love that show. And plus, it's hilariously politically incorrect, which is something that you don't. Yes, see that often. it is. It is a guilty pleasure that show. So um, <laughs> check check it out, people. It's 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 fun, but you have to have a stomach for it. You do. What is your favorite thing to do around the house when you are not working? 
I like to do more for exercise, Muay Thai, uh, kickboxing. It's, I, th- I think if everybody in the world was forced to do kickboxing, we wouldn't have wars. It's a good way to get out aggression. Uh, let's talk about favorite music: uh, R&B, hip hop, reggae, rock, pop, jazz, country, or classical. I'm going to show my age here. Preference probably for 80s and 90s, which was my formative years in music, and then some. We would have called it rap back in the day. Some old school 80s rap slash R&B. All right. Well, that's back in that's back on Vogue. <laughs> 80s and 90s concert T-shirts. There's a huge premium on them. All the all these young people are buying these things. Like you can't get them anymore. Oh well, everything old is new again. Absolutely. So, industry question. In your opinion, what has been the most important recent advancement in the world of mining? I think mining is a very very traditional industry in many ways, and so I, I don't think there's a particular material advancement to flip that question around and say maybe the biggest challenge the mining faces is is reputation. And largely that's because there's a disconnect between the average person understanding where their stuff comes from and the fact that the products of mining are really the foundation of life as we know it. So Nikki, as I mentioned earlier, you spent over 25 years in the mining sector and have multiple senior roles across the mining spectrum, including CEO, director, consultant, research analyst, and investment banker. With all of your mining experience, what first attracted you to the Bravo mining opportunity? So Luis reached out to me last year, and how I look at investing myself, I call it the three Ps. So people, most important ingredient. You can have a great management team extract huge value from a mediocre project and a poor management team destroy value left, right, and center. And so for me, absolutely people followed by project, followed by place. And I knew Luis from a former part of my career where I was a CEO of of an Australian-listed company with a large open-pit gold mine in the northern part of Brazil. And so I knew him because we use his law firm. He would hate me saying this, but he's literally famous in mining communities in in Brazil and a huge advocate for the mining industry. So Luis reached out to me last year and said, would I be interested in being involved in something he was working on? So he sent me CA and sent me a summary of the project and then it ticked the project box very, very rapidly. Uh, It's very rare to come across a tier one asset. Everyone says they have one, but not many people do. And then the place. I I know Brazil, I would say, pretty well. It's fantastic from its location in terms of low economic hurdle, access, infrastructure, simple land status, and some of the complications that you can see with other projects in Brazil this one doesn't have. And so it hit all of those three ingredients. And this was my first opportunity to get involved in something where you're helping to build and contribute in the nascent stages of, of, of the evolution of a company. Excellent. So what was the aha moment that made you believe that, yes, this is definitely the right business move for you? The email from Luis. <laughs> I figured he's a, he's a very smart guy. He knows who's who in the zoo. So if it had Luis's seal of approval, then I was in. No questions asked. So before we do a deeper dive into Bravo, I'd love to get your thoughts on the current mining environment in Brazil as a whole. Uh, Brazil has a very long mining history, and it's one of the five largest mineral producers in the world. With over 3,000 mines, Brazil ranks as the second largest iron ore producer, the sixth largest lithium producer, the eighth largest nickel producer, and the 13th largest gold producer annually. So when compared to other large mining countries like Chile, Mexico, and Peru, how big could Brazil be as a global mining producer? I think it could become the global mining mining producer. And there's a couple of reasons for that. We're seeing this shift, I think, in political power around the world. And some of that shift is predicated upon security of something as simple as energy. The repercussions in Europe, for example, of not investing in security of supply on energy, uh, security of supply of critical minerals, and all of those things that 
being referenced in popular media. And Brazil is a country that has everything going for it. Over 80% of its power is, is renewable, and that's due to a luxury of geography. So they've got a very big contributory factor on hydro, and hydro is one of those few power supply methodologies that can supply base load power. We've got a very big population, over 220 million. It is well endowed. Almost any commodity that you can think of, there's a world-class deposit sitting in Brazil. As you said, it's got a long history of mining. It's got a very technically strong mining workforce in the form of geos, met guys, mining engineers, mine builders, etc. It's a country that's got absolutely everything going for it. And if it takes advantage of these, these natural attributes in terms of energy independence, in terms of lower carbon footprint, in terms of having 12% of the world's fresh water supply, and let's not forget uh, Brazil's the only country in the world that's won the World Cup four times and go Brazil. <laughs> Seriously, Brazil is is a country that has the potential to become a global leader. I guess one of the more significant trends in mining has been the ongoing shift to a greener economy, which is also pushing demand for base metals. This whole global decarbonization trend is another factor leading to strong metals demand, which could further drive metal prices higher. So what are your views on nickel as a key battery metal as demand growth is driven by electric vehicle adoption? I think nickel, copper, a guy I know who runs Hot Chili, I'm on the board of Hot Chili for disclosure purposes, and he has this catchphrase that copper is the new lithium, <laughs> which I think is hilarious because we're focused on some of these sexy, trendy metals, and obviously the, the, if you've been exposed to lithium this year, it's one of those few asset classes that has outperformed. Almost any commodity that you can think of has probably got some linkage to the global move to decarbonisation. And the question that I ask myself, and I think that anybody that understands the supply-side challenges globally is, how do you bring on these key commodities that are the foundation to decarbonisation, such as copper, such as lithium, nickel, obviously, playing a very, very big part, PGMs in the build-out of hydrogen fuel cells. How do you bring these projects forward when the biggest challenge our industry faces is reputation? And so there's such an inelastic supply-side response to demand. And we've seen every government in the world essentially come out and say, we are identifying critical minerals and we want to incentivize investment in those critical minerals because there's huge supply gaps on almost any commodity that you can think of over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And another thing that Brazil has done and I think doesn't get acknowledged or perhaps is rewarded for this publicly as it should is there's a lot of rhetoric going around globally from governments, but very, very few governments have actually put their money where their mouth is. And Brazil has. It's come out with an implementation of a strategic minerals policy. So a number of strategic minerals and what they've said is those those projects that receive that critical minerals designation, those projects are eligible for fast track permitting. And as far as I'm aware, it's one of the only governments in the world that has actually made a very, very succinct move to help facilitate the rapidity of development in key commodities such as nickel and lithium is in that mix and iron ore is in that mix and luckily for us PGMs are in that mix and so I think that that bodes well for Brazil as a go-to place for investment dollars. It's interesting I want to touch on a couple of your of your comments one of them was just on on supply according to the IEA nickel demand is expected to grow 4000% over the next 20 years from 80 metric tons to over 3000 metric tons and the percentage of nickel demand from clean energy technologies is expected to grow from 8% to over 60% from 2020 to 2040 first of all do you think we're going to get a, a real price pinch and do you actually share that view on uh, nickel demand going forward I think the demand for battery-related metals is real. I'm not sure that demand will escalate 
as rapidly as some of the forecasters are predicting. I think there's a very mature, maybe elite worldview on, for example, on the build out of electric vehicles, particularly in a highly inflationary environment, for example, if your finances matter to you, and for 99.9% of the population they do, you'll be making uh, an investment decision, whether it's on a vehicle, as which, and we know that EVs are more expensive and ICEs are less expensive. And so it's not just the cost differential at the moment, but it's also all the infrastructure that is needed to allow uh, the build out of EVs. And that is occurring in mature world economies. And yes, you're seeing a very rapid take up of EVs in mature world economies. I would say maybe less so in less mature economies. So for example, in what we label now as the non-mature economies last year, you had a 9% growth in ICE vehicles and internal combustion engines. So yes, it's real. Yes, it's happening. I think there's debate about the rapidity of that expansion. But excluding that, look, mining is becoming more and more difficult. The timelines from discovery to production of almost any commodity that we can think of is plus 25 years. And so we don't need a massive near-term increase in demand to result in what I would call incentive pricing in almost any commodity that you can think of. So for mining companies and for investors to be willing to deploy capital into a very high-risk industry where your lead times are long, your ability to permit projects is becoming more and more difficult... I think you need prices that will encourage that incentive. And at the moment, we are seeing no interest in development projects at all. Very few development projects are getting built or financed. Large companies don't want to build them. And so if you look on, on the supply side shortfall, I think that puts us in a very good position for price expansion on these key commodities over the next less than five years, actually. So another point I wanted to expand on was nickel and lithium. They're definitely the headline grabbers when it comes to EVs and commitments to a net zero future. But what are your thoughts on other energy metals like platinum and palladium? Uh, more specifically, palladium traded about twice the price of platinum due to the Russian conflict and ongoing supply chain constraints. But when we think about platinum's use in green hydrogen catalyzers, what are your views on the platinum price going forward? Clearly, the biggest demand driver for the PGM complex today is their use in the automotive industry. And despite ICE vehicles, potentially the demand from them going down, conversely, the loading per ICE vehicle has increased due to increased emission standards globally. And so in the States, in China, throughout Europe, in India, etc. So there is this foundational demand element, I think, that's very supportive because ICE vehicles aren't going the way of the dodo. But what we are seeing, which is an end member demand factor is what's going to happen with the build out of hydrogen fuel cells or in the hydrogen, the green hydrogen economy. And so this is real. It is happening. It is happening in Korea. We are seeing investments in plants, investments in Korea. Andrew Forrest of Fortescue fame with his new green vehicle is out globally espousing the benefits of, of green hydrogen and hydrogen fuel cells. We're seeing uh, plants being built in the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you start to look at what can this mean, and everybody's focused on platinum, uh, for the use in hydrogen fuel cells, this could have an incredible impact on primary demand for platinum that would supersede ICE vehicle demand for platinum today. Now, some people would say, well, what about palladium? Well, palladium can be used as well. Obviously, it's got very similar properties, but there is a difference in price point. 
if you're taking a view on ICE vehicles declining over the next five to 10 years and reducing demand for PGMs, I think there's a very, very good argument to say that that demand will be more than offset for what's going on globally today with hydrogen fuel cells. And I think ultimately our energy mix will be, it'll be a mix of lithium batteries, hydrogen fuel cells have this particular application for storage of power from renewables. And the biggest issue with renewables is they can't supply baseload power because you can't control how that power is distributed unless you have material storage. And the biggest challenge with renewables today is storage and hydrogen fuel cells are a mechanism with which we can start to alleviate that storage issue. I'd love to chat a bit more about a topic that's definitely top of mind when thinking about mining investment in Brazil, and that's the political climate. So the Brazilian people recently elected Lula da Silva to the presidency again and ousted incumbent Bolsonaro by less than 2% of the vote. Under Bolsonaro, a quote-unquote friendlier mining industry emerged, and the Fraser Institute continues to rank Brazil as one of Latin America's top mining regions and one of the top mining jurisdictions in the world. Do you think that the current political situation in Brazil may actually change this view? No, I don't. One of the biggest growth in investment dollars that we saw in Brazil was under Lulu's government previously. And Brazil swings left, right, left, right. And you don't really see big jumps in terms of what that means for investment and the business community. And part of the reason for that is the strength of Congress. So any material changes, they have to be approved by a majority of Congress. And at this point in time, I think that there's, you would you could argue that would be quite difficult to pass through changes through Congress that would be materially negative for encouraging investment into the country. Number two, I think Lulu, he's been very moderate in espousing what his plans are for the country as a whole. And obviously you get political posturing in any election and you, we've seen this from both sides. But I think the general consensus is that nothing will change too much on the ground. What he is really focused on and is talking about, and I think it's been positively received, is the deforestation efforts that occur, particularly around illegal mining in the Amazon. That is a problem, particularly with gold mining, illegal gold uh, operations that's using mercury in your gold extraction processes, and then obviously the, the pollutant effects of that to rivers. And so that is a problem and it does need to be tackled. And so when he's talking about this publicly, I think you'll find that there is a focus on let's ensure that illegal mining starts to decline in terms of its recent growth and also its negative impacts to the environment. That's interesting. So I actually wanted to just talk about that. He, he actually, in a Twitter post, said that the PT governments, including himself and Dilma Rousseff, reduced deforestation in the Amazon by 80%, helping reduce the emission of greenhouse gases that cause global warming. And then that post came under scrutiny as critics said that the number is inaccurate the actual reduction in deforestation was about 72%. So I'm sitting here going, that's still a very good number. <laughs> but in your view, does promoting a greener future and caring for the environment have to be at odds with the mining industry? No, absolutely not. The biggest uh, contributor to deforestation in the Amazon in Brazil is deforestation related to providing farming, grazing land for cattle. If you look at any mining, if you look at a chart, the impact of mining to deforestation is so infinitesimally small relative to these other major impacts to deforestation that it's a tiny little line on a chart. And so sometimes I think mining has this outsized negative view versus what its real impact is. And how it works in the Amazon, for example, is that if you as a mining company and you are working in primary Amazon rainforest, 
number one, it's very complex to get permits around deforestation. Number two, you can only ever impact 20% of your property portfolio at any one point in time. And so you are constantly having to manage that in terms of being very selective in your deforestation efforts and how many companies also deal with this is to buy, and it's not just mining companies, UNM, Brazil's largest mining contractor, has purchased uh, some land which they're preserving in perpetuity as a biodome that can't ever be impacted. And so you see companies doing these kinds of things as well. The rules are very, very strict. As we know, mining actually does not impact a material landmass, and I think that the environmental controls are critical. Mining does impact the environment. It's just, in fact, everything we do impacts the environment. Having a dog negatively impacts the environment. So it's just ensuring that you do that in a fashion that is the most responsible approach. Ironically, one of the reasons why big tracts of the Amazon are preserved in the Carajas region, it's because of Vale. So when Vale had all the surface rights over these big tracts of land in where the airport of the Carajas is, it's Vale-controlled land. And you cannot develop. You Farmers cannot go in and deforest. You cannot develop that. So you actually ironically have a mining company that's responsible for preservation of a material part of the rainforest. And if you go to this part of Brazil, you'll see this demarcation when you fly in where beautiful uh, primary rainforest and then huge tracts of land that are being deforested, not due to mining, due to grazing. And this happened around 40 years ago. That is very, very interesting. Let's go back to Lula's past tenure. So during his past tenure from 2003 to 2010, uh, he used the resource industry to raise Brazil to be one of the biggest economies in the world. A recent survey by the Brazilian Mining Institute, or IBRAM, stated that companies in Brazil's mining sector are likely to invest over $36 billion by 2024, demonstrating that Brazil is, in fact, an emerging region for mining growth and investment. So, elephant in the room, given the past charges of corruption, do you think that the international mining companies will continue to invest under this new-slash-old Lula regime? Absolutely. I think that you've seen a maturing of the various political entities in Brazil. The judiciary has always been independent. You have a very, very vibrant democracy with Congress and things are free media. You don't see, in in my experience, day-to-day corruption. I think the big corruption, the headline corruption that's occurred that everybody's aware of was more at a government level. And obviously, there's a huge amount of scrutiny on that. And Brazil actually puts politicians in jail and puts billionaires in jail. <laughs> I would say not too many not too many uh, groups around the world do that on, on corruption charges. I keep it used to being in I was going to say, unlike, <laughs> unlike other jurisdictions that don't uh, really do much. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think we have to be really guilty as Anglophone countries of, of sitting on our high horse. I think that there is corruption in many different shapes and forms around the globe. And you could argue that lobbying in the US is a legalized form of corruption because people are doing things because they hope to get something out of it. And so sometimes I think the corruption charges that are laid against Brazil can be somewhat exaggerated, but you do not see it in day-to-day business activities. Absolutely not in Brazil. If you do, you'll get caught and you'll go to jail. Okay, so I want to ask you this question. There was a media story circulating early in the fall that if elected, Lula planned to charge an increased royalty rate or a quote-unquote special stake on minerals of particularly high value. Ibram already came out against this proposal to raise royalties on specific mining projects. But do you think that there's still uh, a risk of this actually happening? I think we have to be somewhat cautious of the political rhetoric that occurs up to the lead-up of elections. And obviously, he was 
catering to his political base. I think Lulu realises he got into government with a very, very, very small majority. So that means that he does not have a political licence to enact whole-scale changes. And again, anything that gets changed has to go through Congress and has to be approved by Congress. And there are very, very powerful lobbying groups that are part where the Confederation of Industries, for example, where there's over 400,000 companies that are part of these powerful unions. And these are companies that rely on foreign investment, that rely on a business environment that allows one to conduct themselves in and, and take a view of stability on taxes and royalties or whatever the case may be in the future. And so... Is there going to be some assessment around the edges? Potentially. I think he's talked about removing some of the tax taxing dividends, for example. But are there going to be wholesale changes with mining? I really don't think so. And perhaps the warning sign as to that not occurring is what we've seen go on, go on in Chile, where everybody was very, very concerned about essentially semi-nationalisation in Chile. And then the Boric's government did not get popular support for wholesale change with their recent very, very strong rejection of the changes in the constitution and has really walked back from, and you've seen the same in Peru. So I think any politician that understands economic drivers doesn't want to destroy a potential economic driver because ultimately it's investment dollars, it's security of how those investment dollars get, get put to work that help generate wealth for a country, both in the form of direct employment, existing taxes and royalties, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe a bit of a softer question on Brazil as a whole. Uh, the numbers suggest that even with the presence of mining giant Valet in the country, mining currently accounts for only 2.4% of Brazil's GDP. In addition, with less than 5% of the national territory historically mapped, Brazil's true mineral potential has yet to be discovered. So again, softer question. With the current taxation regime, a substantial inflow of foreign investment, a rich history of mining, a highly skilled labor force, et cetera, and a relatively underexplored mineral potential, in the next 10 years, where do you think that Brazil could rank globally in terms of favorable mining jurisdictions? I think anyone who understands Brazil today would rank it higher than it is by the Fraser Institute, for example. So if you look at the States or Canada, uh, your ability to permit a project in the US really depends on your location. And those permitting timelines are getting longer and longer. And the fact that it takes six months to a year to permit drilling on BLM land, it is not easy to work in, in North America from that perspective. I think in Brazil, the regulatory environment is very complex, but it's also very step by step. So if you know what you're doing and you have the appropriate Brazilians in building relationships with all of the local regulatory authorities and with local communities, et cetera, then I think your ability to have security of understanding of, of how to advance a project, it's in some ways a lot more secure than in some other countries. And so maybe another comparator is the Queensland government uh, earlier this year deciding to, uh, out of the blue, implement a 40% royalty on coal mining operations because obviously being significant increase that couldn't happen in brazil so i think brazil has all the right ingredients i think the messaging of what brazil is and what it can be is that's getting a little bit lost and so if the government provides a very clear messaging that we're not going to change things for the negative that we have got an abundance of power if you want to look at from a green perspective when over 80 percent of your power is renewable then obviously reduces your CO2 footprint. It's got incredibly good infrastructure. It's got all the right ingredients. It's just a matter of getting that message, I think, better publicized is maybe the right word globally 
look, you will argue I'm biased, but I've, I love Brazil and I spent two years of my life trying to get a project in Brazil and was unsuccessful, which now I feel is fortunate because this is a way, way better project on, on many levels and I get to be involved. But Brazil, it has all the ingredients. I just think that the mistakes that get made by Anglophone country companies is is not understanding how to work in Brazil. Right. I'm sure you're aware of this. When I was doing my prep for, for our conversation, I recently noticed that Petrobras currently has a 35% dividend yield and trades at only two and a half times earnings. Valet trades at only four times earnings. And the Brazilian real is actually up 13% off the lows. So is Brazil undervalued as a country? Absolutely. <laughs> Again, I'm biased. I, I've been, I've been, I've talked with my husband about this. When you look at what's going around in the world, the geopolitical situation with with many countries voluntarily making themselves poorer. Uh, cheap energy has really been the foundation for global economic growth, and I think this jump in in wealth that we've all benefited benefited from over the last 25 years with the move to net zero, with maybe the average person not understanding how power mix needs to occur, that renewables uh, with the technologies that we have today cannot supply baseload power, all of those things. And then you look at what Brazil has, its natural advantages. Then if it can leverage off those natural advantages, it is so incredibly well positioned. And I look at Brazil as how else can you get exposed to these great foundation elements that Brazil has that are not just mining. It's it's really looking at Brazil as a whole. So I think there's a huge opportunity for Brazil to step up to a, the plate and become a global leader in, in many ways. And a phrase that I use, and it's a uniquely Brazilian phrase, it translates to the knife and the cheese. And what that means is if you have the knife and the cheese, you have all the key ingredients that you need to make something success. And so I think Brazil has the knife and the cheese. I'd love to talk a little bit more about uh, about Bravo and sort of dig deeper into your business. So as I understand it, Bravo Mining is a Canada-listed and Brazil-based polymetallic exploration and development company focused on its Luanga, Palladium, Platinum, Rhodium, Gold, and Nickel project in Paris State, Brazil. So your team acquired the asset from Valley in 2021. So my first question is, why did Valley part with the asset? And second, why did they sell it to you and your team? Valley is going through, I think there's internal and external pressure partly probably because of the Brumandinho dam failure, is to start divesting themselves of non-core commodity projects. And you've seen that them do this with a number of projects. So Luis acquiring Luanga is not unique. One example that's relatively recent, it's been a great success story, is Centaurus with its Jaguar Nickel project. It acquired that project from Vale due to a land swap. So I think that there's this overall arching environment is that they are starting to divest themselves of non-core projects. In that context, Vale knows Luis. Uh, Luis and one of our other directors, Tony Poglazi, were the co-founders of an Australian-listed success story called Avanco. And Avanco, to this day, is the only company that has built and permitted a legal mine in the Carajas other than Vale. And so I think that... Luis's reputation, his very good working relationship with Vale. Avanco was acquired by Oz Minerals. Luis sat on the board of the Brazilian subsidiary of Oz Minerals. He is seen as a, an incredible advocate for the mining industry. In fact, he was one of the key people when COVID happened. The government was talking about shutting down all mining. And he was one of the key guys who were advising the government saying, no, 
you can't shut down all mining. It is an essential industry. Look how safe the mining industry is and had very good stats showing that the least number of cases were coming out of mining. And so I think that those large organisations in Brazil, such as Vale, were also uh, very positively predisposed to a Brazilian who is helping the mining industry globally, uh, the mining industry in, in, in Brazil, and not just looking after their own selfish interests. And so I think his profile in the country, the fact that he's Brazilian, let's face it, I think any organisation will be biased towards ensuring that their own country members and Brazilian nationals get exposed and get to be involved in the growth of the mining industry. So I think all of those things put Luis in a very good position to be, uh, I suppose, one of the go-to guys when Vale is looking at divesting itself of assets. And I think they also know that, that Luis is not a pumper and dumper. He is a mine builder. He has been involved in successfully permitting 13 projects in the country. I think one of, I can't think of another individual that has had that much success and is seen to be very, very good with communities. It was one of the skill sets they brought to the table with Ivanko. So all of those elements, again, I think helped make that decision. And then it was negotiated during the dark days of COVID. Luis was willing to be proactive and take that risk. And as we recall, in March of 2020, we all thought the world was ending. Luis is not alone in getting projects from Vale, but I think that he's a fairly unique individual. I want to double-click on a unique aspect of Luanga. I understand it was selected as a strategic minerals project by the Brazilian government. What does that mean? And what else did you acquire from Vale in addition to the sizable land package at the project? So what that means is that the project, and it's the earliest stage project to be given strategic mineral status. And what that means is that you're eligible for streamlined permitting. So it means that you will get the attention. It's not lesser permitting. It is that you'll get the attention of the regulators to ensure that you can permit your project in a more timely way. It is great for the company and for the owners of the company because it reduces permitting timeline risk. What the company got other than just the asset, which is incredible, but we got access to the plus 50,000 metres of diamond core that was drilled by Valet and that was drilled in the early 2000s and plus 70% of that core is now on site. So this is an incredible resource and not just the fact that it would cost a material amount of money, probably around 40 to 50 million US to replicate all of that drilling, but it's the time element. And to drill 50,000 metres is a plus two-year endeavour. So benefited from that, benefit from all the assay data that from Valet, from geophysics that was flown. So this incredible wealth of information that the company and the owners of the company get to benefit from. And so we at Bravo, the team on the ground, uh, are going through a process of re-logging all of that ballet core, re-assaying all of that ballet core. Interestingly enough, you, you, you learn more about a project as time goes on, is Valet didn't, for example, religiously assay for rhodium. They only assayed for rhodium because rhodium is quite difficult for, to assay for is they, and it's expensive. They only assayed for rhodium when their PGM content was above a certain amount. And so one of the things that we realized with this project is the amount of rhodium has clearly been underestimated. We've been getting some absolutely spectacular rhodium results and rhodium is trading around $13,000 an ounce and we're as high as $45,000 an ounce last year. And then we get to benefit from this geophysical data. So it just allows when you're approaching, it's a brownfield site in many ways in the sense that there's a known deposit there we just get to benefit from this huge amount of information that's been collected. And it helps us target in on, on highly prospective areas. This is a really, really, really big system. It's got 8.1 kilometres 
of strike. I can't think of too many deposits in the world. In fact, I can't think of one <laughs> that is such a large mineralized system from a strike perspective. Interesting. The Luanga project is located in a mining-friendly region of Brazil. But again, we'll touch back on, on Lula's past statements about greening of the mining industry and decreasing the amount of deforestation in the Amazon. Uh, are there any negative implications for Bravo? No, because Bravo benefits from the fact that all of this area of Brazil, where the project is, it was deforested 40 years ago. So whatever happens with this project, and we expect that it's got the quality that will ultimately be built, if not by us, by somebody else, is that we are not coming, cutting down primary rainforest. In fact, we're doing the opposite. We're committing to planting plus 10, uh, plant, 10 trees for every drill hole that is drilled. So we've already begun that reforestation process. And in fact, we're helping some of the landowners. Uh, the other positive project element this project has is it's privately owned. So you're not dealing with some of the challenges that you would have if it was INCRA land or some other kind of land designation. So that simplifies things. And so we're also helping the farmers with their reforestation commitments as well. And the trees were cut down for grazing. So there's no communities on the project. Nobody lives on the project. Uh, cows live on the project. There is no Indigenous community uh, within 50 kilometres. The rules are in Brazil that if you have an Indigenous community within 10 kilometres, that that requires quite a material consultation process with FUNAI, which is the regulatory body that controls and that manages Indigenous relationships. And then you have the town of Parabepis, which is the mining centre of Brazil, which is located an hour um, and 20 minutes down the road. And then you have a small town called Koreanopolis that's proximal to the project, and then another town that's about seven kilometres away. So it's it's a very, very easy project on multiple levels. And then the other thing is, is because PGMs cannot be extract, extracted through relatively primitive means that illegal miners would use, or as Brazilians call them, garamperos, you don't have illegal mining activity, which can be a real challenge to deal with, particularly, for example, you've got a gold project, and then you're having to deal with the garamperos. So we don't have any of these challenges that you might elsewhere in Brazil. And what Luis is incredibly good at, and again, his reputation precedes him, he and the Ivanko team built a, a mine that's about 50 kilometers down the road as the crow flies. And what they did, and we're implementing the same and have implemented the same practices with Bravo, is we're ensuring that we are using local supplies as much as possible. And by local, we mean the closest town. We can use, we're using farmers who've got a dozer, for example, to help with pad building. So Sometimes the larger companies, given their practices, they have to use very large suppliers. Some of that economic benefits not attributing to locals, it might be minister, our state, et cetera. And so this, this approach is, is very different. It's really focused on ensuring hiring Brazilians, hiring locally, using local supplies as much as possible, and just engendering that goodwill at this phase of the company, which is really exploration. If we focus on Bravo, the company operationally is in the process of completing a 25,000 meter infill and step out drill program with an NI43101 resource expected within the next 12 months. For the uninitiated out there, what does that mean? And what other project specific milestones are you expecting over the next uh, 12 to 24 months? Sure. So Vale drilled out this 8.1 kilometres of strike of mineralisation. They drilled that out at very wide line spacing. So that means their drill holes along that strike were between 100 and 200 metres apart. So what we are doing is that initial 25,000 metres of drilling, is it's a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel. What we're doing is infill drilling. We're focusing up on high-grade zones and to turn this historic resource estimate 
into an NI43-101 compliant resource. The other thing that Valet did was their average drill depth was less than 200 metres. So they were only looking at this as an open pit deposit. And they have three holes that are deeper than 200 metres. All of those holes intersect nickel plus PGM mineralisation. And so geologists are always arm wavy. We always say it's open in three dire- in all directions. We actually have drill intersected mineralisation that demonstrates that there is material depth potential. And then the other thing that we have found that I think, according to our president, Simon Mottram, he expected it, but I'm not sure the rest of us on the board did, is that we've intersected, uh, for the first time, massive sulfide mineralization. And so this kind of deposit, it's in the low sulfide end member of PGM deposits. And so when you look at the rocks, you go, well, they don't look that shiny or they're not that heavy. And so we intersected in, in this massive sulfide zone. It's a potential game changer. It was dr- literally infill drilling between two drill holes that were 200 metres apart and intersected 11 metres at 2.1% nickel and 1.3% copper and plus 4 grams PGMs and a world-class intersection that was relatively near surface. So I think that if Valet had known about the potential for massive sulphide, that perhaps that project wouldn't have been available, but we get to benefit from the fact that this was this was looked at rather superficially perhaps in the early 2000s and some of the reasons for that are pgms are just they're not the commodity mix for valet what are the cash requirements needed to to meet all of your milestones over the next call it one to two years so when we went public there's a lot of experience around the boardroom and the management team with this company and one of the things from when i my time um, on the buy side working for an institutional investor was it was always very frustrating when companies ipo'd or raised money and and they raised insufficient for a material amount of time with this expectation that their share price would always go up. And it just doesn't work like that. If you've got a weak balance sheet, the market knows and your share price doesn't move because you've got downwards pressure. And so our goal, when we went public, we raised 8 million US privately, 8.5 million US privately. And then we raised 40 million in our IPO financing. And I was told, I'm not sure if this is true, that Bravo is the best performing IPO uh, in Canada this year. And the aim with that the size of funding was to ensure that we had more than sufficient capital for in excess of two years of our phase one and phase two programs, which is uh, 47,000 metres of drilling, uh, diamond drilling, infill drilling, and metallurg- metallurgical test work programs, and just all of the, uh, some geophysics and all of those things that come along with that. So we wanted to ensure that people weren't focused on the fact that we would need to raise money in the relatively near future. And if you know Luis, uh, that man knows how to spread a dollar <laughs> a very, very long way. So we're still, we've got a very strong balance sheet, but still very, very focused on ensuring that any capital that gets deployed, that we see material value for the deployment of that capital. What projects do you see as analogs to Luanga? And what unique features does this project have that gives your team comfort that, yes, it will ultimately be put into production? It's a pretty classic of its type. So it's a... Proterozoic, PGM deposit, nothing funky going in from a mineralization style. So I think people are probably most familiar with the PGM deposits that come out of South Africa and Zimbabwe. So it, it is of that ilk. It is a low sulfide system, or, or so we thought, which is, could that be a feeder? We don't know. Could there be multiple feeders? We don't know. Our job is to actually understand what this beast we have acquired is. I think where it's really unusual is its size Again, 8.1 kilometers in stride. That's a very, very, very large mineral system. 
that number one. Number two, that it's mineralized from surface. And so you have these very broad zones of mineralization with decent grade. So you see some examples in Australia, for example, where you've got companies that have got valuations well in excess of ours, where they've intersected 10 or 11 metres from 100 metres depth of, of mineralisation that don't have the grades at ours that, that Luwanga is, is demonstrating today. So I think from the standout, you could distill it into size, grade, for the fact that it's an open pitable deposit, at least at least for the first couple of hundred meters, and then potential depth extent, and then the upside is is well, what is this massive sulfide, and is there a potential for more? Interesting. So I want to ask you this. So you talked about this in, in the intro. So you got one of the P's. You've, you've got the project. You've got a second P. You've got the place. So let's talk about the third P, the people. Uh, history shows that in the mining industry, there's usually different teams needed for projects at different stages, uh, stages of the development. So when we consider permitting, drilling, development, mine construction, and ultimately production, how have you built your management team and board uh, for success? I think that this is, it's a catchphrase we've been using. It's a fit for purpose management team and board. But it, whatever this company becomes, I think we have the in-house skill set to take it forward because people that are in part of this company on the board and the management level have built mines in Brazil, have financed mines in Brazil, have operated mines in Brazil, have access to incredibly talented teams within the country, have extensive capital markets experience, both from a project financing perspective and also from a general capital markets and investment banking perspective. So this is a board with a very diverse skill set, including PGMs, uh, some names that are very, very well known in North America, such as Stephen Quinn. And of course, we've tried to ensure that we have as much Brazilian representation as possible. So our entire management team is either Brazilian or lives in Brazil. And ironically, the challenge that the company is facing, it's a great challenge to have because people enjoyed uh, the team that they built with Avanco. I think the, the company, just segue a little bit on the ESG side, we're so focused on the E, but the S is as equally as important is, uh, for example, when the company went public and issued options at the IPO price, every single person, including the Camp Cook, got options. I don't know of too many companies that subscribe to ensuring that if wealth can be generated and built, that everybody that works for that company has some exposure to that. So there's a fairly unique approach. Because I think of that unique culture that was built with Avanco and the reputation, already the guys that were involved in building the mine have reached out with, well, when's the mine going to be built? When can we come and help you with that? And various MET guys and processing guys and mining engineers and geologists all doing the same thing. So again, the company... It's not a company that hasn't built and operated mines, not just in Brazil, but in this part of Brazil. Interesting. I wanted to ask another thing. It seems this is a very Canadian statement because you seem to know where the puck is going. You've already alluded to this, but I wanted to ask more uh, a question about Luis, your CEO. He owns over 50% of the company. Can you talk a little bit more about some of his background in mining regulation, project permitting, and just the, the overall mining business in Brazil? Sure. So Luis was originally a geo <laughs> back in the early days. Then, then he turned to the real dark side and became a <laughs> lawyer. So then he worked for various international mining companies in Brazil and saw a gap in the market and established his law firm, FFA Legal. An FFA Legal, if you understand Brazil, and it's hence how I got to know Luis, is the go-to uh, law firm if you want to get things related to mining done in Brazil. So 
he has got probably more expertise than just about anybody else's, all things mining in Brazil. So, for example, Luis has been directly involved in successfully permitting, permitting 13 projects. He has sat on boards of numerous companies, has been part of the executive team with Avanco, for example. And Avanco was an incredible success story, perhaps less well-known in North America. But that team, which includes Simon Mottram, who was the VP of Exploration, uh, the equivalent to the VP of Exploration, who's now uh, Bravo's president. Luis was an executive director. Tony Poclesi was the managing director. That team took an asset from an exploration dream, from discovery through to permitting, into project financing, construction and operations in under five years. That is a miracle timeline. And not only did they do that in that shorter timeline, they did that under time and under budget, almost unheard of in our business. So Luis's profile with the regulators, his reputation for doing the right thing, his incredible expertise in permitting in Brazil, his overt engagement in the mining sector, he's involved in many, many organisations, gives incredibly freely of his time. He he just makes a a real effort. And so he stepped away from the day-to-day management of of FFA and is really his his the entirety of his focus is is really on on Bravo and part of that is I think that he's realized that this is a once in a lifetime project and he wants to be in control of his of its destiny so yes he's a very sizable shareholder but he when he he received those shares for vending the project into Bravo, the entity, the private company, but he gets nothing else. He hasn't got a what you'd see in Canada is an additional royalty, additional cash payments, et cetera, et cetera. So he's put his money where his mouth is and his intent on, on making this a success. And he knows what he's doing. And he has assembled an absolutely fantastic best in class team. I couldn't help but notice that your shareholder base is quite diverse for a junior mining company. In addition to management and directors like yourself, names like BlackRock and Franklin Resources are significant shareholders. How are you able to build such a notable shareholder base? (laughs) I think in in our business, uh, relationships, again, are the key foundation. And so BlackRock was a big shareholder in Avanco, and it was a great success story. So he has a huge amount of respect for for Luis and there's mutual respect there. And so we reached out our policy for raising money in the private round. And this was really partly from my experience of being on the buy side was there's always a bit goaling when investors, when companies would come to you for the expensive go public round, but not having the courtesy to let you know when they were raising money privately. And so our approach was to reach out to all of our contacts in the industry and between the board and management team, I, I would say we have unparalleled context and, and partly from my perspective of being on the buy side for quite a number of years, you build a lot of relationships with people on the buy side without wanting something from them. So right, perhaps that's, right, a, that's a good foundation <laughs> when you actually do want something. And so I also think that I have a reputation probably for being too brutally blunt and, uh, and, and transparent in some ways. And so I think that that helped as we reached out to the investors that I knew, to some that Louise had a relationship, to some that Stephen had a relationship or Alex had a relationship or Tony had a relationship. We had a very, very good grounding. People knew who we are and, and I think people trusted us. And so that allowed us and I, we wouldn't have gone public without the support of our four main shareholders, which is and the largest is obviously BlackRock followed by Tembo, Franklin, and RCF. I think that speaks to the quality of the team, first and foremost, and also the quality of the asset. Oh, kudos to you. That's actually, that's quite impressive. It's quite impressive. Here's my question or my attempt to understand career adversity. 
What was your get her off the field moment? You know, the moment you made a big mistake and everyone wants you to shoulder the blame. What was your moment and how did you recover? Well, Kenrick, that's an impossible question to answer because I've obviously never made a mistake. <laughs> I, that's a little bit of a, of a tough one. I think maybe one of my, my attributes and what I really noticed this actually was running a company that was in a very distressed situation was that I have the ability, I think when I make a mistake, I am honest, honest enough with myself to, to go, well, this mistake is made, how do we fix it? And how do we fix it as rapidly as possible? And so perhaps the best one that I can think of was I went from being a non-executive director of a company to running that company. And the reason was, was that company was in a very, very difficult situation financially, very, very stressed balance sheet. It was in Brazil. Obviously, as a board, you take ultimate responsibility and uh, the CEO was departing and someone had to step in and fix it. And I agreed to step in and fix it. And we managed to stabilize the operations. We uh, fixed a plant upgrade that had been very, very poorly mismanaged. We got the company on a steady footing and all with an incredibly stressed balance sheet. And the reason that we did that was, I think what I brought to the table was an understanding that our Brazilian team was absolutely superb and they hadn't been listened to. And so all I did was remove the handcuffs to the Brazilian team and then they executed but what I also realized was dealing, being in the hot seat, so to speak, I'm, I was used to being on the buy side, asking the difficult questions, was being in the hot seat, having to answer them with a company that had disappointed, the share price was down, this was 2018, people were very, very unhappy, uh, being at the Denver Gold Forum and, and literally having an investor yell at me for five minutes was that you, the way to fix it is we had made mistakes and it was stepping up to the plate and going, well, these are the mistakes that we made. And I wasn't the leader when those mistakes were made. However, I was in the role where we were trying to fix them. And so I think how we, how we dealt with that situation, and I think it was very well received with our institutional shareholders because we raised the maximum under 15% role in a very distressed situation was to be very clear that these are the problems, be very transparent, ensure that you're engendering trust with those investors that are on the other side of the table. And in doing so, we ended up selling the company. We financed via M&A. We ended up selling the company for a 69% premium. Um, my husband's um, a massive Manchester City football fan, and his analogy oh, was... Man. Oh, <laughs> and he has been since he was five, and he's from Manchester. It's part of his culture. But as he said, I inherited a situation where we were down 2-0 at halftime, and what we ended up doing was was equalizing over the course of my tenure of, of running that company. That's interesting. Well, trust and transparency, that's usually a pretty good formula for success. So congrats on that. I won't hold that Man City, uh, the fact that your husband's a Man City fan, I won't hold that against you. <laughs> but, uh, but thank you so much, Nikki. Um, what I've learned today is that even with the recent change in president, Brazil is still a very favorable jurisdiction that will continue to encourage foreign investment in the mining sector. As countries and corporate entities commit to a net zero future, this is further drive demand for nickel and PGMs, which again, bodes well for Luanga. And finally, you've also assembled a top-notch management team fully capable of taking this asset all the way from permitting to production. So is there anything else that you would say to complete the picture? And how should investors think about Bravo Mining as a public company? I think Bravo Mining, in, it's in that sweet spot right now. It is an expiration story without expiration, the expiration risk, because we know there's a big deposit. Our job is to demonstrate how big it is. I think also, given the skill sets within the company, we're ensuring that we're de-risking it, that when the market is screaming for us to develop it, 
and that screaming will represent itself in very, very strong share price performance is we have everything in place to ensure that it gets de- developed in uh, as rapid time frame as possible. And I think we're in an environment, obviously, it's highly inflationary. Nobody wants to hear about development. You do not want to be building a mine today. In our business, flexibility is one of the most powerful things that you can have. And, and this is a company that has flexibility and I think understands that ultimately it's it's what's going on in the cycle that should be dictating your strategy. And this is a company that will ensure that it has couple allocation discipline, uh, something that possibly lots of our peers don't have. And our aim here is to ensure that the dollars that we spent result in, in, in alpha performance. And anyone who's been watching the company and seeing the drill results, I think it's partly due to the general market conditions we're in, which obviously are not favourable, but we've been releasing world-class drill intersections. And the stock has been, it's, it's held up, but in a normalised environment, you would see very, very strong alpha performance based on those drill intersections so and we'll be continuing to release we've got a lot of backlog of drilling and we're not going to do anything stupid maybe that's the best way to describe bravo (laughs) (laughs) oh well said well said so final question if you could own and run a sports organization which one would it be and why well i don't really follow any sports except football english football by default because neil is a season ticket holder of manchester city despite the fact that he doesn't actually live in manchester uh, so <laughs> i'm going to answer this one for him i'd buy manchester city and then uh being very aware of the history of the club and the fact that it's a big cultural institution in manchester then i'd allow him to be my assistant <laughs> there you go so I, I don't know if i should mention i'm a manchester united fan <laughs> um but i am growing up here you only got to see a liverpool or man Chelsea United, I'm not a Liverpool fan. So I'm on the red side of Manchester and had a chance to go to Old Trafford a couple of times to watch some games. So maybe one of these days we can all get together and watch uh, United Trash City. (laughs) But Nikki, thank you so much for being on our podcast. We really appreciate it. We want to wish you continued success and best of luck with your business. Thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, check your app now to make sure that you've subscribed so that you don't miss an episode. I'm Kenneth Sylvester, and I'll see you next time. Problems and personal issues, stories that I make your eyes tear and wet tissue. It's true, I'm mad like the rapper. I'm so upset I gotta put it up in my rap before I snap or after. The things I've seen from Atlanta to Queens, to the main streets of Brooklyn when I was a teen. Back and forth to the islands, screamed when I left, but adapted. And still my dreams haven't left my only...